Well, happy 4th of July weekend. Uh, if you're like my family was yesterday, we were setting off fireworks and uh, the rest of you were complaining about the people who were setting off the fireworks and that was probably me and my family. Uh, we were out west of town where my in-laws live and uh, setting off fireworks with them. And I guess the rest of the city, or literally the rest of the city, it was a little crazy going home last night. Uh, I passed like three fire trucks and people like actually in the middle of the street setting off fireworks. It was kind of nuts. And uh, the rest of you were kind of like, yeah, you people are crazy. Like you're sitting off fireworks all night long. I couldn't sleep, driving my dogs crazy. And uh, we had a little bit of that too, though. My uh, brother-in-law is in town with his family and they brought their uh, puppy Black Lab. But uh, this puppy is big and strong and was freaked out by the fireworks. And my daughter Nixon went into the house to get something, she came back, and I guess the dog seeing like this green light to get away from outside and inside my father-in-law's barn, uh, just ran right through Nixon, hit her right in the back of the leg. She flew up in the air, came down on her rear end. She's crying and screaming. The dog's freaking out. Everybody's panicking. We're trying to figure out if Nixon's okay. Meanwhile, bombs are going off over our head. It was nuts. And some of you are like, that's the exact reason I don't set off fireworks. And the others of you are like, man, that's the reason I love setting off fireworks. <laughs> that sounds like just my kind of crazy. Well, in the same way we all approach 4th of July differently, there are people in our country that approach the 4th of July in our country altogether differently than a lot of us do. They see it differently and historically have approached and view our country in a different light than many of us do. Frederick Douglass, the African-American abolitionist, said this about the 4th of July. What to the American slave is your 4th of July? I answer, a day that reveals to him more than all other days in the year, the gross injustice and cruelty to which he is the constant victim. To him, your celebration is a sham. Your boasted liberty and unholy license, your national greatness, swelling vanity, your sound of rejoicing are empty and heartless. Your denunciation of tyrants, brass-fronted impudence, your shout of liberty and equality, hollow mockery, your prayers and hymns, your sermons and thanksgivings with all your religious parade and solemnity are to him mere bombast, fraud, deception, impiety, and hypocrisy a thin veil to cover up crimes, which would disgrace a nation of savages. There's not a nation on the earth guilty of practices more shocking and bloody than are the people of the United States at this very hour. Frederick Douglass and many Africans, African-Americans have always viewed our country differently than people that look like me. They view the 4th of July differently. And the reason they see it differently is because they believe, and it's been true, that we haven't always lived up to the ideals that we declared in our Declaration of Independence. Things like freedom, liberty, and justice for all. Inalienable rights that have been endowed by our creator. Things that represent the character and the heart of God. We have not lived up to. We are a, a broken and sinful people. And so it makes sense that we would not have lived up to these godly ideals. A, a song that our country holds dear is my country tis of thee. Well, there's an abolitionist version of that song as well. And it goes like this. Here's a couple of the lyrics. My country tis of thee, the stronghold of slavery. 
of thee I sing. Land where my fathers died, where men, man's rights deride. From every mountainside, thy deeds shall ring. My native country, thee where all men are born free, if white their skin. I love thy hills and dales, thy mounts and pleasant vales, but hate thy Negro sails as foulest sin. The problems in our country today reveal and expose the truth that black people still do not believe there is liberty and justice for all. And if that's true, we've got a major problem on our hands and we need freedom to rise. And that's what we've been saying in this series. We, we've fallen and so we need to rise. That's what Micah said. Micah, the prophet said in Micah chapter seven, verse eight, he said this, the verse for our series, though I have fallen, I will rise. And we talked about that verse, the context of that verse in week one. And we said, though our faith has fallen, it's going to rise. Though our family, our marriages have fallen, it will rise. Though our finances have fallen, they will rise. And so we talked about how, how do we experience a rise in faith, a rise in our families, our marriages, a rise in our finance. Today, we're going to talk about how do we see a rise in freedom. Though freedom has fallen and historically it has fallen short in our country, it too can rise in Jesus's name. Today though, you're going to hear some things you may not like and you may not agree with. It's going to be hard, I promise. And so in light of that, I want to say three things to you. First of all, number one, because you will hear some things you won't like. First of all, let's understand that the creed of the Christian is that I'm broken, sinful, sick, and I need a doctor. Jesus said, I came to call those who know they are sinful, not those who think they are righteous. I came to call those who know they are sick and need a doctor. The creed, the claim of the Christian is I'm so broken, sinful, evil, and wicked. I need a savior. I need a doctor to heal me. And so why wouldn't we be willing to listen and even assume that we have sin that we need to confess and repent of. If, the, if our creed is I'm broken and I'm sick and I need a doctor, why wouldn't we at least assume maybe there's sin in my life that I need to confess? There is nothing patriotic about telling an incomplete, simplistic, whitewashed version of our nation's history when we are a broken people that would logically form broken, flawed systems. We are a flawed people. That's what the Christian believes. And so it only logically follows that we would form broken, flawed systems. As Christians, when we read the Bible, we recognize that events that happened thousands of years ago are still relevant today. We also see that the scripture never hides the ugly parts of its history when it comes to the people of God. The Bible tells about David's adultery, Jonah's selfishness, Peter's failure of faith. And just like we can't take out parts of the Bible we don't like or that make us uncomfortable, we cannot celebrate the shining moments of American history, but then ignore the shameful aspects of that history. In 1 John, we learn that if we claim to be without sin, we are liars and the truth of God is not in us. And so surely it's also true that corporately, whether it's as a church or as a country, if we were to claim to be without sin, that would make us liars as well. And the truth of God would not be in us. If we claim that our party or our candidate that we love so much <laughs> is without sin, 
We are liars and the truth of God is not in us. Glorifying our country to the point where we act as if it has not been guilty of some of the most heinous sin for the most of its existence is idolatry. And to that point, a Lifeway research poll said that 53% of Protestant pastors say, my congregation seems to love America more than God. And if that were true, and to the extent that it is true, that would be a major problem in the church because that is idolatry. Our country is not perfect. It is not God. And so it is not therefore worthy of worship. Celebration, yes, but it must be put in its right priority. To say that anything is perfect is to put it on the level of God himself. Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 said this, that we should judge ourselves and then maybe God wouldn't have to. And so this morning, I would invite you to take the posture as a Christian that I'm going to judge myself so that God doesn't have to. Secondly, because you will hear some things that you don't like and maybe don't agree with today, regardless of the aisle, side of the aisle you find yourself on, I would invite you to email me or call the church if you have a problem, and I would love to sit down with you and talk about it. But know that we will talk about what the scripture says because the scripture is my final authority for my life, faith, practice in this church. So we will always talk about what the scripture has to say. And then third, because you will hear some things that you may not like or disagree with today, I want you to know that we are committed to not being a comfortable church in any sense of the word. I refuse to be a part of a church or to pastor a church where I come in and sing the songs and hear the thing and do whatever and leave and I'm never the same. I refuse to be a part of a church like that that is comfortable. And I hope you refuse to be a part of a church like that as well. So in light of that, we will at this church passionately follow Jesus. We will make disciples. We will preach the gospel. We will confront sin. We will stand for injustice and we will stand against injustice. And here's what you need to know about me. God has been dealing with me over the last few months about the things I'm about to talk to you about, like dealing with me personally. And so I'm not going to be silent about that. I refuse to be silent about injustice ever again. And I refuse to back down from the truth of scripture. The things I'm saying today will most likely offend you. They offend me, but that's the nature of being a Christian. We have the Holy spirit that leads us into holiness. It confronts us. It convicts us. That's a good thing. And as the people of God, citizens of heaven, first and foremost, let's make a commitment to be a people of God's word informed by God's word, not necessarily a political platform or even man's opinion. Let's be a people of God's word. So in light of that, you can open up your Bible to Isaiah chapter one. You can open up your app on your phone, the City Church Lubbock, or download our app. Uh, it's a great thing to have if you're a part of our church. You can click sermon notes and follow along with us. The verses and the points, everything will be there. You can even fill in the blank as we go to kind of participate, engage, and to get the most out of our time together. But let's go to Isaiah chapter one. God is speaking to his people, his chosen people, the nation of Israel through the prophet Isaiah. And here's what God says through the prophet Isaiah to the nation of Israel. Isaiah one, verse 17, seek justice, correct oppression, 
Bring justice to the fatherless and plead the widow's cause. Seek justice, correct oppression. It can also be interpreted, rebuke the oppressor. Rebuke the oppressor. Here's the context. Here's what's going on. God is not happy with his people, Israel, for separating their spiritual lives from their social and political lives. Commentators, in fact, have noticed and note that Isaiah's prophecies are very political in nature and in instruction. Isaiah would continue to warn the nation of Israel that their power and riches had brought them a level of comfort that led them to become apathetic to the suffering and oppressed in their society. He warned them that this angered God in the same way that the rest of their idolatry angered God and they would be judged for it. So as the people of God, Christians today, there's really only one question to ask. And here's the question that we've got to ask as Christians. Who are the oppressed in our society? The, the, the heart of God, we just read it in Isaiah 1, is to seek justice and defend the oppressed, rebuke the oppressor. That's God's word. And so the heart of God is to defend the oppressed. So the only question the people of God then have to ask, it's real simple, who are the oppressed in our society? Who are the oppressed? As citizens of heaven, we have our own agenda from God that trumps, no pun intended, and takes precedent over any political party or agenda. We, we've got our own agenda. It's not the conservative agenda. It's not the liberal agenda. We've got our own agenda from God and it has its own initiatives. It's a kingdom agenda and it trumps all of man's agendas, parties, and preferences. And so since we believe that every life begins at conception, and I do, we defend the cause of the unborn. How do we do that as Christians? Well, typically we preach, we vote, we donate, we organize, we protest, and rightfully so. We do this for an oppressed people that cannot speak for themselves because they are people. The unborn are people. We don't say that's a political issue. No, it's a moral and spiritual issue to us that is clearly explained and talked about in the Bible. And so we engage there. Shouldn't we also listen to groups of people who are claiming they are being oppressed, especially when the scripture so clearly tells us to do so? God is actually telling Israel in Isaiah chapter one, if you go read the whole chapter, he starts telling, stop all of your religious activity. Stop your singing, stop your sacrifices, stop all of this religious stuff because you're not defending the cause of the oppressed. You're overlooking the oppressed. You're not listening to them. There is no freedom and justice for all. So God says, stop with all your religious nonsense. It's hypocrisy. And most of us, some of us might have said, but God, that's a political issue. Make no mistake, justice for the oppressed is a spiritual issue. Justice for the oppressed all throughout the scripture is a spiritual issue. Now you might be thinking, Clayton, you're only talking to us from the old Testament, the old covenant right now. I mean, what about Jesus? Was Jesus really about justice for the oppressed? I mean, can you really say that that justice is a spiritual issue? Well, if you go read in Matthew chapter 25, Jesus says that when he returns one day and he sits on his throne to judge all the peoples, he's going to put the goats on his left and the sheep on his right. And the goats are going to go away to eternal destruction, to hell. They were not followers of Jesus. The, the sheep, on the other hand, 
representative of followers of Jesus will go to eternal life, to the place that was prepared for them. Eternal life with Jesus, paradise forever. And what is the the mark of the sheep? What's the factor that differentiates? how, How can we tell who's a goat and who's a sheep? How do I know if I'm a goat or if I'm a sheep? Well, Jesus would say the mark of a true believer of a sheep in Matthew chapter 25 is someone who cares for the poor, the orphan, the widow. In other words, the person who cares for the marginalized people, the typically overlooked, the typically oppressed people, the the person who has that on their heart, that shows, that reveals that they are a true follower of Jesus. Now we're not talking about getting saved by works or that you're gonna be saved because you develop a more of a heart for the pressed or you do better or try hard. That's not what we're talking about. Jesus is saying the mark of a true believer, the overflow, the fruit of that tree is a heart for the oppressed, for marginalized people. And all throughout the scripture, we see God hearing the cry of the oppressed and the marginalized. But who, on the other hand, are the groups in the scripture? Who are, who are the people that did not listen to the cries of the oppressed in the scripture? Well, one is Egypt. One, one's, one's Egypt who enslaved the Israelites, who oppressed them. And God says, I have heard your cries. And God would decisively judge Egypt for their sin, for their idolatry. But God would specifically say that one of the reasons that the nation of Egypt was judged is they did not listen to the cries of the oppressed. Well, then the oppressed become the oppressor. And in the time of Isaiah, God says to Israel, you are not listening to the cries of the oppressed. And Isaiah and other prophets would continue to warn them that you better start listening. And they didn't. And God would judge them. But let me ask you this. Wouldn't you want to know if you were Egypt in the story? If you were Egypt, don't you wish now, like, wouldn't you thought, man, I wish we would have listened then. If you're Israel, wouldn't you think back and think, man, I wish I would have, I wish I would have known well, God, God I, I told you, God's saying, I told you, I'm telling you now, wouldn't, wouldn't you want to know, wouldn't you love to know if you were Egypt in this story? Wouldn't you love to know if you were overlooking an oppressed people? Now, some of us would disagree that there is an oppressed people or still an oppressed people in our country. And that's our only question we have to answer, right? So let's try and answer that. Do, do we have an oppressed people in our country? Well, let's back up. We don't have time to cover all of American racism or the church's silence and complicitness in preaching that actually supported racism for the last 400 years. But let me give you a few examples. And I'm going to focus on the church's role in racism in our country because that's who I'm a part of. That's who I represent. God doesn't just look at us as individuals. He also looks at us corporately. We are the bride of Christ. We are the church. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're a spiritual family. And the scripture refers to us as a bride, like as one unit. And so we can look at historically the way the church has responded to racism, even with a sense of responsibility, because we are the bride of Christ. 
So let's back up. Let's look. 1667, the Virginia General Assembly voted on whether their black slaves could even hear the gospel. Whether they could get baptized. Fearing their spiritual freedom would give them a desire for physical freedom. Christian slave owners didn't want their slaves hearing the gospel and even debated whether it was possible for a black person to even become a Christian. They debated whether that was even possible. 1740, the Negro Act in South Carolina said that the barbaric treatment of slaves wasn't Christian. So punishment of slaves should be relegated to whipping. That was the Christian thing to do. To to whip your slaves. Now they said if you cut out their tongue or castrated them, you would be fined. But the Christian thing to do was to just whip your slave. George Whitfield, a famous revivalist preacher, considered one of America's spiritual founding fathers for his ministry during the Great Awakening, would buy plantation to support one of his orphanages, own slaves to work the land, petition Georgia to allow slavery, And he suggested that allowing slavery in the state of Georgia could improve the financial fortunes of the land and claim that economic ruin was the only alternative. Jonathan Edwards, considered to be one of the greatest American theologians and preachers, owned slaves. With the Declaration of Independence in 1776, Americans and Christians alike said that since all men are created equal with inalienable rights endowed by their creator, that black people must not be people, but property in the same way that cattle are. And so it was called chattel slavery. They were property, not people. And so they didn't have the same rights. They weren't equal to the white people. The first black congregations had to meet in secrecy for fear of persecution from their white Christian owners. Most of the time, black Christians were forced to attend with their white owners, segregated in certain seating in the building and not allowed to lead or minister so that they could be controlled. Later, black churches would be denied entry into denominations and even burned to the ground by white Christians. These two practices are what would cause the segregation on Sunday mornings that we still see to this day. Around the time of the Civil War, all the major denominations split over slavery. I'll focus on the one that I grew up in, the Southern Baptist Church. It's the kind of church I grew up in as a kid. The Southern Baptist Convention was started because Southern Baptists wanted to form a convention inclusive of slaveholders. That was the reason it was formed in the first place. They wanted to be inclusive of slaveholders. The convention's first president, William Johnson, explained the reason for the separation in the new convention. These Northern brethren thus acted upon a sentiment they have failed to prove that slavery is in all circumstances sinful. They failed to prove it. They don't want us to do it. So we've got to form a new convention where we can be inclusive of slaveholders. The Southern Baptist Convention and most other denominations, almost every major denomination did the same thing, would say that slavery is a political issue, not a spiritual and moral issue. Does that sound familiar? During Jim Crow, between 1877 and 1950, it's believed that more than 4,000 African Americans were lynched, the last one taking place in 1981. White supremacy was championed by Christians, improved by the rise of the KKK because of the writings of a Baptist minister. 
that romanticized the KKK and a movie called The Birth of a Nation was made based on it. The movie would be one of the first shown at the White House and Woodrow Wilson would have multiple screenings of it with guests showing it to hundreds of people. The glory of the KKK and the inferiority of the black man. One author estimates that 40,000 Protestant members, ministers were members of the KKK. 40,000 ministers were members of the KKK. Christians, for the most part, would remain silent and complicit with Jim Crow segregation and even support it through their preaching. In 1933, the federal government created the Homeowners Loan Corporation to purchase the homes of people who were at imminent risk of defaulting, issuing new loans under new terms. To manage the risk associated with purchasing homes and offering these loans, the HOLC investigated the surrounding neighborhood and other potential properties to determine if they were likely to retain or increase in value. The racial demographics of the neighborhood were the key factor in assessing these property values. The HOLC created color-coded maps of every metropolitan area in the nation with the safest neighborhoods colored green and the riskiest colored red. Neighborhoods with any black people, even if the residents had stable middle-class incomes, were coded red. And lenders were unlikely to give loans in these areas. This practice became known as redlining. The HOLC policy was a form of government-sponsored racism. Redlining practices persisted all over the country into the 1950s and 1960s, making residential desegregation one of the main fronts for civil rights activism. In addition to federal redlining policies, realtors and neighborhood associations would use private measures to enforce residential or segregation. Rather, for much of the 20th century, restrictive covenants or deeds provided a legal-based race mechanism to exclude black people from purchasing homes in white communities. Private but legally enforceable restrictive covenants forbidding the use or sale of a property to anyone but a white. And this happened in Lubbock. Here's the copy of a city ordinance from the city of Lubbock in the mid-1900s. It says this, an ordinance prescribing the portion of the city of Lubbock within which Negroes and persons of African descent containing as, one mu- as much as one-eighth Negro blood shall reside except bona fide servants residing on the place where employed, forbidding persons to sell property outside of such district or to Negroes or to persons containing as much as one-eighth Negro blood, forbidding the rental of property outside such district to persons containing as much as one-eighth Negro blood, providing penalties in declaring an emergency on account of Negroes living in other districts and causing danger to health and pollution of the atmosphere. Be it ordained the city council of Lubbock, no Negro or persons of African descent or containing as much as one-eighth Negro blood shall own property or reside thereon in any part of this city except that part lying south of 16th Street and east of Avenue C. And no person shall rent or lease to any such Negro or person of African descent or person containing as much as one eighth Negro blood outside of the territory limits as stated above. Next page. The the fact that Negroes and persons of African descent and persons containing as much as one eighth Negro blood are residing in various portions of this city and their residents is dangerous to the health 
and pollutes the earth and atmosphere and creates an emergency and necessity that the removal of the charter requiring an ordinance to be read at two several meetings be suspended and this ordinance be acted at the meeting of its introduction and for it to become effective. And now a copy of a deed on the Lubbock house. Right here under number three, no premises or building tract shall ever be used or conveyed to any person of any race or descent other than persons of the white race, provided, however, that the restriction shall not prevent occupancy by domestic servants of different races or descent actually employed by the owner or tenant of such premises. Intimidation was used, violence was used, redlining was used. And when these things didn't work, whites would move out of their neighborhoods in droves, believing black people would cause their property values to plummet. The phenomenon was so widespread in our country, it was given a name, white flight. To prove that Christians were by and large supportive of this segregation, First Baptist Church Dallas pastor, Kerry Daniel, and at the time this church was the largest church in the Southern Baptist Convention, had a sermon and pamphlet created called God the Original Segregationist. Later, First Baptist Church Dallas Pastor W.A. Criswell stated in 1956 that desegregation is a denial of all that we believe in. He went on to say that Brown versus the Board of Education was foolishness and idiocy. And he called anyone who advocated for racial integration a bunch of infidels dying from the neck up. We, and when I say we, I'm talking about white Americans and Christians, have corporate and historical sin, blood, on our hands, on the level of the Crusades, if not much worse. That we must continue to acknowledge, confess, and repent of, just like we do with the Crusades. Now you might say, I didn't do any of that. I didn't have anything to do with it. I wasn't even alive back then. I was born in 1981. I, I wasn't around for any of this. What responsibility do I have? What, what do I have to confess? Well, oftentimes we see in the scripture leaders confessing corporate sin of the people they represent. We see this all throughout the Old Testament. Israel's prophets and leaders would come before God in brokenness and humility and they would put on things like sackcloth and, and, and put ashes all over to, to show their humility and brokenness before God, not, not necessarily for their own sin, but for the sin of their people whom they represented. They understood, they realized, God doesn't just see me as a, this individual. No, I'm a part of this corporate body, the people of God, this spiritual family, and they would confess the sin of their people. One of the best examples I can give you is, is in Isaiah chapter six. You might be familiar with the story. Isaiah is in the presence of God. And Isaiah says, God, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then he says this, and I live among a people of unclean lips. Isaiah confesses and repents on behalf of the sin of the people. How could we possibly think that there aren't lingering effects? 
How could we possibly think that three to 400 years of racist policies and even preaching in our country wouldn't disadvantage black people and give advantages to whites? Now, I understand most of us had nothing to do with the actual perpetration of these things, but ignoring the effects of systemic racism, its experiences, the cries of the oppressed is sinful. And I am guilty of this. I've been accused recently of only bringing this up recently when it became a headline story. And that accusation would be fair. I haven't always spoken about this stuff. And it was sinful for me not to. I haven't always listened to the cries of the oppressed. I've been partial to my own story, to my own experience. And James, the brother of Jesus, said that to show partiality is a sin. I've been partial to my own story. I haven't listened as much to other people's stories and experiences in our country. Over the last couple of months, I've been reading everything I could get my hands on. I've been watching everything I could possibly watch. I've been studying and researching and trying to figure out what what, what have I missed? And as I've studied, I literally can tell you it was like I was blind, but now I can see. I'm guilty of this. And when we're confronted with sin, we can own it and change it. Or we can ignore it and explain it away. In 1995, the Southern Baptist Convention adopted a resolution apologizing to African-Americans. It took to 1995, but praise God, they apologized, as have many other denominations. Here's part of their resolution that they adopted in 1995. Here's what they said. Whereas our relationship to African-Americans has been hindered from the beginning by the role that slavery played in the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention. They acknowledge that it, it was one of the main roles in the formation of the Southern Baptist Convention. And whereas many of our Southern Baptist forebears defended the right to own slaves and either participated in, supported, or acquiesced in the particularly inhumane nature of American slavery and whereas in later years, Southern Baptists failed in many cases to support and in some cases opposed legitimate initiatives to secure the civil rights of African-Americans and whereas racism has led to discrimination, oppression, injustice, and violence, both in the Civil War and throughout the history of our nation. And whereas racism has divided, divided the body of Christ and Southern Baptists in particular and separated us from our African-American brothers and sisters. And whereas many of our congregations have initially or intentionally rather, or unintentionally excluded African-Americans from worship, membership and leadership. And whereas racism profoundly distorts our understanding of Christian morality, leading some Southern Baptists to believe that racial prejudice and discrimination are actually compatible with the gospel. And whereas Jesus performed the ministry of reconciliation to restore sinners to a right relationship with the heavenly father and to establish right relations among all human beings especially within the family of faith. 
Therefore, be it resolved that we, the messengers to the sesquicentennial, it's the 150th anniversary meeting of the Southern Baptist Convention, assembled in Atlanta, Georgia, June 20th through the 22nd, 1995, unwaveringly denounce racism in all its forms as deplorable sin, and be it further resolved that we affirm the Bible's teaching that every human life is sacred and is of equal and immeasurable worth, made in God's image, regardless of race or ethnicity. And that with respect to salvation through Christ, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for we are all one in Christ Jesus. And be it further resolved that we lament and repudiate historic acts of evil, such as slavery from which we continue to reap a bitter harvest. Southern Baptist confessed We are continuing to this day to reap a bitter harvest from our decisions in the past. And we recognize that racism, which yet plagues our culture today, is inextricably tied to the past. The racism that we experience today in our country, Southern Baptist said in 1995, is inextricably tied to the past. And be it further resolved that we apologize to all African Americans for condoning and or perpetuating individual and systemic racism in our lifetime. And we genuinely repent of racism of which we have been guilty, whether consciously or unconsciously. And be it further resolved that we ask forgiveness from our African-American brothers and sisters, acknowledging that our own healing is at stake. And be it further resolved that we hereby commit ourselves to eradicate racism in all its forms from the Southern Baptist life and ministry. And be it further resolved that we commit ourselves to be doers of the word by pursuing racial reconciliation in all our relationships, especially with our brothers and sisters in Christ, to the end that our light would so shine before our others that they may see our good works and glorify our Father in heaven. One of the other reasons I use the Southern Baptist Convention as an example is that most people, especially Christians, would acknowledge that Southern Baptists are some of the most conservative people on the face of the planet, on the face of the planet. Yet they acknowledged in 1995 that systemic racism, racism exists and it is inextricably tied to the past. And messengers to the Southern Baptist Convention in 1995 were apologizing and asking forgiveness. Why? They may not have been the ones that they themselves had perpetrated those acts. But they were confessing, repenting, and asking forgiveness on behalf of the people they represent. They realize, they recognize we have corporate and historical blood on our hands. We've got to repent of it and we've got to ask forgiveness. Recent Baptist seminary presidents, even in the last couple of months, whether it's Southwestern, Southeastern. Southern, they have all posted statements saying that systemic racism exists and we must do all that we can to acknowledge it, confess it, repent of it, defend the cause of the oppressed. I mean, these are some of the most conservative people on the planet and they are confessing to this stuff. And so here's what I want you to know. Here's, here's why I tell you that is that this isn't some, you know, bunch of young people, liberal Christians, you know, running around saying we got to defend the cause of the oppressed. 
These are some of the most conservative people on the face of the planet. These are gray haired conservatives saying that systemic racism is an issue and it's one we must confess and repent of. And we must not be silent. We must speak and we must act. And I don't know about you, but one day when I stand before God, I want to be able to say that I did the best I could to do what seemed right in God's eyes and what seemed to be in line with the heart of God as revealed in his word. And in order to do that, in order for that to be true for you and and for me, and I think we could all agree on that, we would love to be able to say and stand before God, hey, I did the best I could to do what seemed right in your eyes and to do and to live in a way that seemed in line with the heart of God. To do that, I want to challenge you with two things. Number one, here's the first one. It's better to err on the side of apathy or empathy than apathy. It's always better to err on the side of empathy rather than apathy. And I would say, if we are going to see a rise from our fall in this country, if we're going to see freedom rise, it will be because we erred on the side of empathy. Apathy creates indifference, inaction. And indifference and inaction to oppression only serves to perpetuate oppression. And so I would invite you to consider that it's better to err on the side of empathy. And then secondly, here's what I would, I would say to you. Christians never say, not me. They always pray, Lord, search me. Search me, O oh God, and know my heart. See if there's any offensive way in me. I don't, I don't, I don't know about you, but over the last couple of months, I, I hear a lot of Christians say, no, 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 not, not me. I didn't do that. I had nothing to do with that. that that's not me. I just don't find that in the scripture. I don't, I don't find Christians saying, no, 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 not me. There's no way I've done something wrong. There's no way I could have messed up. There's no way I've held wrong beliefs. I, the Christians I read about in scripture are humble and they're saying, oh, oh Lord, if that's, if that's true, change me, God. Search me and know me, test me. See if there's anything offensive in me. And if there is, God, lead me in your everlasting way. Christians never say, not me. They always pray, Lord, search me. Amos, the prophet Amos in chapter five, verse 24 says this, but let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. In that famous song I referred to earlier, My Country, Tis of Thee, the last line of that song says, let freedom ring. Sounds a lot like Amos chapter five, verse 24. Let justice roll down like the waters. Let righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Let freedom ring. I would submit to you that this 4th of July weekend, the most patriotic, the most American thing that we can do is to confess, is to repent, is to weep with those who are weeping. And it's to commit to let freedom and justice ring to every last person in this country. Most Christians are familiar with the old hymn called Amazing Grace. Some of you may even know its origins. 
It was written by a guy named John Newton in 1772. And most historians, theologians believe that John Newton wrote Amazing Grace as he looked back on his life of sin, amazed that God would even save him. John Newton would say the biggest embarrassment of his life was that he participated in the slave trade. He was ashamed of it to his dying day. And he would join forces with William Wilberforce and they would seek to eradicate the slave trade in Great Britain. But after he came to Jesus, ashamed of his past, ashamed of his sin, his participation in the slave trade, he penned the words to amazing grace. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that would save a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Would you sing that with me as we close? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. Amen.